Please take your Bible and turn with me to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We began our singing with uh, these words, and I encourage you to keep them in mind as we now turn to God's word. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Keep those words in mind. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. As we now turn our attention to what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Turn back just for a moment to chapter 7. And look with me at the first verse in that chapter. Opening statement. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so evidently, Paul has received a letter from the Corinthian believers. He has received a letter from the church in Corinth. We don't have a copy of that letter, but Paul and I all likelihood had it there set before him as he wrote this letter. And in the letter he received from the church at Corinth, those believers, that church, they have raised a number of issues, concerns, problems, questions. Turn with me to chapter 8. The very first verse. Now concerning food offered to idols. And so evidently 
in this letter that Paul received from the church in Corinth, they make mention of this fact that some in the church, it seems to be a pretty significant contingent, some in the church, they are actually attending the feasts in pagan temples where they are eating food sacrificed to idols. And from that verse, again, just look at it, put a finger there, chapter 8, verse 1, you got it? And then just flip over the page, chapter 11, verse 1, put another finger there, have you got it? That's a section, a section, a complete section in which Paul then responds to their query. He addresses this issue of Christians going up to these pagan temples and partaking of participating in these feasts and eating of this food that has been sacrificed to pagan idols. And so chapters 8, 9, 10, and I even throw in there the first verse of chapter 11, this constitutes then his response. And so how does he respond to this issue that they have raised? In chapter 8, you see it there, you got 13 verses. What he does at this juncture, in these verses, in this chapter, is very simple. He tells them, look, we all know there's a deeper issue in play here the elephant in the room. We all know there's something else going on here. You've raised this issue of the legitimacy of participating in those feasts, but we all know that there is something far more sinister at work here, and I have been addressing it ever since the first chapter, and here it is again. Some of you are looking to what I have called markers. And some of you have been identifying with a human leader. Some of you have been championing a particular spiritual gift. Some of you, unbelievably so, have been indulging in libertinism, sexual immorality. Some of you are at the opposite extreme and you're championing celibacy. And now some of you, in the name of Christian liberty, are going up to the temples and participating in the feasts. What I'm really concerned about is the reason why you're doing this. And here's the reason why you're doing this. is because you have lost sight of who you are in Christ Jesus. And therefore, you have created these markers by which to convince yourself and others of your status and identity and standing in Christ. Paul calls it what? In the first verse of chapter 8. Knowledge. You're championing this knowledge. But this knowledge puffs up. This knowledge puffs up. It leads to arrogance. This arrogance leads to division. And this is the deeper issue in the church at Corinth. You've brought your presentation problem, as we say in counseling. You're addressing your surface issue, but there is something much deeper going on here. There's a heart problem, and you've lost sight of what it means to be one with Christ, of what it really means to be a Christian. You've lost sight of what it means to stand upon the rock, 
and you're standing upon all these other things and you're convincing yourself that you're spiritual, you've got it together because you're doing this or not doing that. And so that is Paul's first order of business in this big section. It is to tell them that there is a deeper issue at play. Then in chapter 9, he tells them that they need to be focused on love. He's raised it in the 8th chapter, and he's made it clear that, look, when it comes to being a Christian, the only marker is love. Those who love God are known by God. And I want to make it perfectly clear that it's pretty simple to tell the difference between love and this knowledge that puffs up. This knowledge that puffs up, it leads to divisions. It causes you to judge your brothers and sisters. It's causing you, let's face it, to tear this church apart. But love? No, love's great desire is to build up. And it longs to build up to such a degree that it is willing to sacrifice. It is willing to forego everything. Ninth chapter, let me point to myself as an example. That's what Paul does. Sounds arrogant. It's not arrogant. That's why I include chapter 11, verse 1 in this section, because again, what does he say there? Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, there's someone who surrendered everything. There's someone who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, took the form of a servant, walked among men, and gave himself upon Calvary's cross. That's love. That is a desire to build up. I'm imitating him. And here is how my love for you has been made abundantly clear. I have surrendered my rights for the sake of the gospel, he says in the ninth chapter. I have become a servant of all for the sake of the gospel. And I have disciplined myself for the sake of the gospel. That's the only marker of Christian identity, of our union with Christ. It is a love that desires to build up in marked contrast, speaking to the church at Corinth, to your so-called knowledge, which in actual fact is arrogance. When an actual fact comes from the pit, You've lost sight of who you are in Christ, and you're turning all these things into markers, thereby creating these divisions in the church at Corinth. Now, the third thing he does, you remember the section, right? Chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 11, verse 1. The third thing he does, we find in the 10th chapter, and it is simply this. He tells them that if they fail, Oh, my brothers and sisters, he pleads with them, really. If they fail to address the deeper issue, they are in danger of being destroyed. That's what he says. Really, from verse 1 right through to verse 22, we're tackling the first 12 verses today. We'll leave verses 14 through 22 for another Sunday. And then you have a concluding word to this section, beginning in chapter 10, verse 23, through to chapter 11, verse 1. Have you got the flow? You see what he's doing. You see what he's targeting. You understand what he's after. And so again, in this section, in the 10th chapter, he is now telling them that if they fail to deal with the deeper issue, they are in danger of being destroyed. Verses 1 through 12 
How does he do that? How does he warn them? How does he caution them? Three steps in his warning. All right? I think they correspond, if memory serves me correctly, to three blanks in your sermon notes. Here we go. Step number one. Sort of Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. Here's what he says. I want you, here's the first step in his warning. I want you to recall a community. You got it? It might strike you as a bit strange. It'll make sense in a moment. I want you to recall, remember, a community. First five verses of chapter 10. Start with verse 1. I want you to know, brothers, notice his compassion. He still holds out hope for them. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers. All right? He has a specific group in view. He is now hearkening back in history to the Israelites. I want you to recall a community, an ancient community. Now notice, he says five things, and he begins each remark with the word all. Very significant. Verse 1, all, in reference to the fathers, these Israelites, all, number one, were under the cloud. Number two, still in verse one, all passed through the sea. I'll explain these in a moment. Just stick with me. Verse two, number three, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Number four, into the third verse, and all ate the same spiritual food. Number five, verse four, and all drank the same spiritual drink. All All, 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 I've lost track, was that four? All, number five, our fathers, the Israelites. To what is he referring? He is simply giving a very straightforward exposition of Exodus chapters 14 through 17. That's it. A brief account of what happened when the nation of Israel, the Israelites, departed Egypt and arrived at Sinai, this intervening period is recorded, chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, in the book of Exodus, from Egypt to Sinai. And Paul basically mentions these five events. The first, all were under the cloud. You know what that was, right? Most of us. It was that pillar of cloud, that pillar of fire, that physical, tangible, visible manifestation of the glory of God among the children of Israel, whereby he led them out of captivity. And it was his pledge to lead them, guide them, provide for them, and protect them. All were under that cloud. All passed through the sea. Well, those of us who have been around the church any time, we know what he's referring to there. That's the crossing of the Red Sea. God parted the waters marvelously, miraculously, so that all the people could pass on dry land. And then an interesting statement at the outset of verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Because following those two events, we read that the Israelites believed in God and believed in Moses. It was by following God's appointed leader, following God's appointed head, that he led them by under the cloud through the sea. 
And then as we come into chapters 16 and 17, what do we discover? They're hungry. So what does God provide for them? The manna. There it is in the morning. And they can collect it and eat it to their satisfaction. And then in Exodus 17, we read that they are thirsty. And so God commands Moses to take his rod, strike the rock, and the rivers of water flow from the rock to satisfy their thirst. I want you to get three things here. If you get these three things, you've got Paul's point. You remember he's saying, I want you to recall a community. I want you to recall a community. And firstly, I want you to get this. That community saw some pretty spectacular things. Hey, that community witnessed some unbelievable miracles. That community, our fathers, all of them were part of the covenant community. They were a privileged people. Look at what happened to them. And look at what God did for them. And secondly, I want you to get this. I want you to remember this community and pay particular attention to what I've said. All, 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 all of them are fathers. Had those blessings and privileges. And now the zinger, if I can call it that. You've been waiting for it. The fifth verse. Nevertheless. With most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Are you understanding? This is Paul's first component, if you like, of his warning to the church at Corinth. I want you to recall a community. All of them, unbelievably advantaged, unbelievably blessed. Nevertheless, folks, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now here's the second step. Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. I want you to make a comparison. All right? You've recalled this community. You know the stories. You've known them since you were little boys and girls. You know this. This is familiar stuff. We've been over this lots of times. I want you now to make a comparison. Begin in verse 6. Now these things took place. As examples for us. I want you to make a comparison. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. He's reminding them, you're in the last days, all right? In the former times long ago, God spoke right, through the prophets in many ways, divers ways, right? But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You live in the culmination point of eternity is what he's saying to them. And you can read the first three chapters, for example, of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and he makes this point abundantly clear that all of revelation in Scripture was pointing to Christ and his church. 
that all of human history was pointing to Christ and his church, that the entire plan of redemption was pointing to Christ and his church. And with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the beginning of the last days, and the church has been in the last days ever since Christ's first advent, and they will continue, we will continue in the last days until Christ's second advent, and the end of the ages have come upon us. And that means that that revelation, which has now find its culmination in the New Testament, the mystery which was revealed to the apostles, that apostolic word is now available to us and we can read the Old Testament through the lens of the new and we understand what they never understood. We get what they never got. And in this particular instance, we discern and understand that these particular events, yes, happened to them, but they were penned down. And they were actually written for our instruction. What is it we are to glean from these events as we make this comparison? The first thing is this. We are to understand as we make this comparison that we share the same blessing. We share the same blessing. Look carefully at verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us. What things? Come on, logically, what things? The things he has just mentioned in verses 1 through 5. And there he has mentioned, he's really actually only mentioned four things. Joined the first two with a third statement. And so what we really have here are two couplets. The first couplet is there in verse 1. All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. Here's what I mean by this. This couplet, he puts these two together. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then there is another couplet in verses 3 and 4. What does he put together? Spiritual food and spiritual drink. Hmm. So we've got these people, all people, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And we have these people, all people, enjoying spiritual food and spiritual drink. Hmm. Baptism into Moses. Spiritual food, spiritual drink. I'm going to repeat it one more time. Baptism into Moses. Spiritual food and spiritual drink. What's the comparison? It's baptism in the Lord's Supper. He's reminding them of the marks of the covenant community. And he is clearly drawing this comparison just, just as they were a privileged, unbelievably privileged people. You too, church at Corinth, you are participants in some wonderful privileges. You too are set apart as a covenant community. You too have been baptized. You too partake of the Lord's Supper. But here's what I want you to understand secondly by way of comparison. That just like them, we face the same temptation. We share the same blessing and we face the same temptation. What is it? Verse six. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. There's the temptation to desire evil. What evil? He does not leave us hanging. He gives four Potent examples. 
First is what? Idolatry. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. He's going back to Exodus 32. People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What was that? That was Sinai, wasn't it? They've experienced all these blessings and privileges. They've been led under the cloud, passed through the sea. They've eaten this this manna. They have drunk to their full from this rock from which flowed those, that, that, that water, that, that river, they've arrived at Sinai. Moses is absent. There he is up the mount receiving the law. And what are they doing? They're fashioning for themselves a golden calf. And they are prostrating themselves before it. They desired evil and their desire for evil was seen in their idolatry. Secondly, into verse 8. Their desire for evil was seen in their indulgence in sexual immorality. Well, there are plenty of records of that, but Paul pinpoints one in particular with his next statement, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. And there he is referencing events that occurred that are recorded for us back in Numbers 25. When the children of Israel saddled up next to the Moabites and they committed absolute unspeakable whoredom with the Moabites. Indicative of what will plague, plague the nation ever since they, from the t- moment they leave Egypt, right into the promised land and occupying the promised land. This is a nation that will repeatedly indulge in sexual immorality. How do they desire evil? Thirdly, verse 9, they put God to the test. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And we're destroyed by serpents. Destroyed by serpents. Number 20, Numbers 21 Give us something to drink. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die here? And they disbelieve in God. They doubt God's goodness. They doubt God's provision. Oh, that we were back in Egypt. And God sent the serpents among them. Oh, how did they desire evil? The fourth manifestation, verse 10. They grumbled. They whined. Don't grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Numbers 14, they arrive at the land. The first time they arrived at the land. And they sent the spies into the land. And the two came back, returned with a good report. The ten came back with a very negative report. And the people grumbled. The people complained. And off God sent them into the wilderness to wander for 40 years. And they were destroyed by the destroyer. Friends, we share the same blessing. We face the same temptation. And please do not miss this. We face the same danger. It's right there at the end of verse 10. They were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, verse 11, these things happened to them as an example A better translation is this. Now these things were happening to them as an example. He doesn't here mean an example for us. That's what he said back in verse 6. Here he's actually indicating that all of these things happened as an example for them. They should have learned. God didn't destroy them all at once. It was progressive, wasn't it? Over a period of 40 years. And each judgment should have alerted them to their condition. 
And now by way of comparison, Paul says in the middle of verse 11, they were written down. These things were written down, recorded, Exodus 14 through 17, for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so I want you to get it. We share the same blessing, the privileges of the covenant community. We face the same, same temptation, this desire for evil as expressed in idolatry, immorality, doubting God, and grumbling. And if we succumb to that temptation, we face the same danger, which is to be destroyed by the destroyer. Pretty heavy stuff. That's the second step in his warning. The third step is this, in the main point of the passage, verse 12. I want you to draw a conclusion. And so the first step, I want you to recall a community. The second step, I want you to make a comparison. And the third step, I want you to draw a conclusion. And there it is, plain language, verse 12, therefore. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That was the problem that our fathers encountered. They thought they stood. And why did they think they stood? Because they surmised, as they looked at all of those privileges, all of those markers of the covenant community, and all that they had experienced, that there was no doubt but that they were the people of God. Look at us. God has led us under the cloud. God has led us through the Red Sea. God has provided miraculously to satisfy our hunger, miraculously to satisfy our thirst. We are a blessed people. We are a privileged people. Look at all these things. We stand on all these things. But all the while, they were a people who desired evil. And they were destroyed. This is horrific stuff, folks. That's all I can do. I can only expound the text. What is Paul's point now to the church at Corinth? You're in exactly the same place. You're in precisely the same predicament. Unbelievable spiritual advantage. Unbelievable blessings. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there you are, this church, this, this, this obvious community set apart, this covenant community as demonstrated in the celebration of these two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But you know, as I received that verbal report from Chloe and her people, and as I've received your letter, it has become abundantly clear, apparent to me, that there is something amiss here. I'm still calling you brothers. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt, but please understand, if this continues, and down you go your merry way on that road, please understand, you now stand in exactly the same place that your father stood. If you keep looking to all these markers, 
If you keep convincing yourself, well, I've got it together, I'm good, God and me, I'm spiritual because I'm speaking in tongues or because I'm living the celibate life or because I'm associated with Apollos or because I know what Christian liberty is and I can go up to the temple and eat of that food anytime I want or for this reason or that reason or any other reason, if you are convinced that your standing before God is based on anything but the Lord Jesus Christ, understand this, you are guilty of desiring what they desired. It will be made manifest in idolatry. It will be made manifest in immorality. It will be shown in complaining against and grumbling against God. In effect, you will test God himself. And understand this. Continue on that path. And you will show yourself to be what I pray you are not, brothers. Is that not horrific? This is the point Paul has got to, though, in this letter. He's still speaking to them pastorally. He's still pleading with them. He's still proceeding on the assumption, is he not? Verse 1, I want you to know, brothers, that they're kin, spiritual kin, believers, one together in Christ, the children of God. But he has got to this point now in his argument where their spiritual predicament has become so serious that he feels compelled to draw this comparison with this ancient people to show that what is going on in the church at Corinth, it may very well be that this is a revelation of your desire for evil. And if that is the case, please understand that all of these so-called spiritual markers they are completely irrelevant. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. The obvious question for me, the obvious question for you is this. Friends, what are we standing on? What are we standing on? And to answer that question, return with me to the fourth verse. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. It's Exodus 17. There they are. They're moving. They're on the move from land of captivity, Egypt, to Sinai, where God will form them into a tremendous theocracy. And along the way, they're thirsty. And they begin to complain. They begin to grumble. They've, they've been gone, I mean, a pitiful amount of time. Oh, that we were back in Egypt. And God speaks to his servant Moses, and he says the following to Moses. I will stand before you there. On the rock of Horeb. You hear what I just said? I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Who stands? Not the people. They should be standing on the rock. They should be standing on the rock, embarrassed, ashamed, and condemned. 
But it is God who stands on the rock. Who strikes the rock. Moses takes his rod. That rod has quite the history, doesn't it? What did Moses do with that rod? Ten plagues, friends. Ten plagues of judgment culminating in the death of the firstborn among the Egyptians back in the land of captivity. And as God takes his place and stands on the rock at Horeb, that rod of judgment strikes the rock. Who is, figuratively speaking, on the rock? God himself. Who drinks of the water that flows from the rock? Oh, those silly people. Those sinful, complaining, idolatrous, immoral people. They drink from that rock. My friend, where do you stand? What are we standing upon? What do we really think accounts for our standing in the sight of God? Some niggling notion in the back of our minds that it is something we have done, something we are, something we're engaged in. This was the plague in the church at Corinth. They couldn't get over it. They were people just completely absorbed with this pursuit of status and standing and one-upmanship. And so they were appealing to all these things, trying to confirm their spirituality. Now, what is it we stand upon? Oh, it is this spiritual rock. And believing in Christ is not a mere decision to believe facts. Believing in Christ is coming to him like a spring in the desert where we are dying of thirst. And it is resting and receiving him to the soul's eternal delight and satisfaction. Where are you standing? Where do I stand? Oh, there is a rock, a spiritual rock, Christ himself. But as we sang again at the opening, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Our Father, we pray that we might have both feet firmly planted upon the rock of our salvation this day. Cause us to look away from ourselves. Cause us to get over the love of self. And cause us, we pray, to be enamored with Christ and to rest completely, fully, and finally in him, the one who is indeed the hope of our salvation. We pray this for your glory, and we ask it in his most wonderful name. Amen.